0: I have a picture for you, and a proposition, and I wonder what you make of them. Here is the picture. Uh, I had the joy of growing up with four cats. Uh, My favourite toy to play with these cats was basically a, a long ribbon of felt attached to the end of an even longer stick. So you'd hold this out a bit like a fishing rod and you'd dangle it near the cats and they would go wild for it. They thought it was a snake or something like that. If they saw it move they just had to have it. But what happened when they caught it was that it stopped moving and they realized that it was not the dinner that they'd hoped for it was just a bit of fabric and they would lose interest in it disappointed even. But just a little wiggle of the stick And the cat's eyes would bulge, their tails would prick up, and off they would go again, chasing this little bit of felt as if it was worth their weight in gold. To the simple mind of a domestic cat, that string of fabric on a stick promised them the world. And even though the chase proved utterly futile every time they caught it, if they saw that thing move, they would stop at nothing until they had their claws stuck in it and they could claim it for themselves. That's the picture. Here's the proposition. I propose to you this lunchtime that if you were to examine your life honestly, you would find some things that remind you of that cat toy. Some things that when they have your attention, they seem like the most amazing thing and you feel like you just have to have it. You'll chase it. You'll tire yourself out over it. You'll stop at nothing for it. And when you get it, you'll find that it wasn't All that it promised to be. It's exhausting to chase after something that will not satisfy you. And the Bible has a word for things like that. They're things like ambition or status or power. They're things like sex or success or wealth. They may each be one part of a life well-lived, but when they become the focus of our lives, the goal on which our eyes are fixed, the foundation on which our feet are planted, we'll find that they disappoint us. The Bible's word for those things is idols. And here's the thing about idols. Idols use you up and they let you down. Idols feed on you and they leave you hungry. Idols make promises that they don't pay up on. Each generation has grown up being promised satisfaction from a certain kind of life. I find some of the saddest stories in our popular culture are the voices of those who know the heartbreaks and the letdowns of chasing these false promises, but who don't know where to turn to seek true satisfaction. Here are the Fleet Foxes, a sort of indie folk band in their song, Helplessness Blues. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you'd conceive. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery, serving something beyond me. But I don't, I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you someday soon. You will see. That could be the anthem for my generation. I'm a millennial. We've been taught to believe in ourselves. But now we're lost and we're looking for something bigger to be a part of. The problem is, many of my contemporaries don't know where to begin searching for it. Or hear these words from Douglas Copeland, the author who literally wrote the book on Generation X. He's got a book of short stories which is tellingly called Life After God. And in it, he writes this extraordinary diagnosis of how so many people feel. Sometimes I think the people to feel the saddest for are people who are unable to connect with the profound. People such as my boring brother-in-law, a hearty type so concerned with normality and fitting in that he eliminates any possibility of uniqueness for himself in his own personality. I wonder if someday when he is older, he will wake up and the deeper part of him will realize that he has never allowed himself to truly exist and he will cry with regret and shame and grief. And then sometimes I think the people to feel saddest for are people who once knew what profoundness was but who lost or became numb to the sensation of wonder, people who closed the doors that lead us into the secret world or who had the doors closed for them by time and neglect and decisions made in times of weakness if that sounds like you even just a little bit then our bible passage for today isaiah chapter 55 is for you if that deeper part of you has fallen asleep can i invite you to wake up if you've become numb to that sensation of wonder can i invite you to feel it again if you've closed the door that leads into that secret world can i invite you to open it and even step through it today Because Isaiah 55 is exactly that. It is an invitation. It's the very best invitation you could ever hope to receive. And it comes from the living God. Here's what it says, Isaiah 55 verses 1 and 2. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what what does not satisfy Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. I know no warmer words in the Bible. This is the character of God on full display and it is in his character to give generously so that we may be fully satisfied. We're just going to skim through these verses for the next few moments. And as we do, we'll take just three lessons from them here's the first of them the lord provides food for the hungry and we're looking at verses one to five here i made a big mistake earlier in the week i went out to tesco just down the road from me to buy some groceries the mistake was i went at two o'clock in the afternoon when i still hadn't had my lunch Now, you may be better disciplined than I am. I can tell you, if I shop on an empty stomach, I buy all kinds of stuff that I do not need, but that I happen to want simply because I am hungry. Well, these verses, verses 1 to 5, speak of a spiritual hunger that works the same way. We're soul hungry, hungry for deep fulfillment and satisfaction, but we end up spending ourselves on stuff that is no good for us. The first image is one of drink or refreshment. Uh, Calm all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Like a, a parched mouth on a warm day, the picture is of a thirst that can only be quenched with refreshing, cool water. In the Bible, water is the source of life. Without it, people shrivel and die. With it, they're sustained and restored. But it's not just water which... After all, it's freely available if you know where to look for it. There is wine and milk on offer too. Wine, a source of, of new things, as well as a, a source of joy and milk, which brings nourishment and growth. The invitation is this, come and have the best of these freely offered. The stuff that's gonna bring you life, the stuff that's gonna bring you joy, the stuff that's gonna bring you nourishment. And verse 2, why spend money on what is not bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Maybe you know what that verse is getting at. It's the person who's been scoffing down on spiritual junk food. It's the equivalent of me buying jam donuts when I really needed a ham sandwich. We spend ourselves spiritually on things that do not fill us and don't give us what we really need. But there is an invitation. Listen to me, the God of the Bible says, and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. In other words, there's a banquet, there's a feast on offer. The invitation here is not just for any food, but for the very best food. And the invitation is free. Instead of spending yourself on spiritual junk food, the Lord says, come to me and you will be truly filled. If you know the book of Isaiah, you'll know that one of the main characters is the servant of God. The servant speaks for God and acts for God. He's promised here in this book of prophecy. And the expectation is that he will come to fulfill those things that are said about him. In chapter 49, verse 6, the Lord says of the servant, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And here, though he isn't named as such, the servant appears in verse 4. Uh, See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. And what does he do, this witness, this ruler, this commander? Well, verse 5, surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. God's promise is to gather his people and to feed them with the best of banquets so that they are fully satisfied. That's what the everlasting covenant is in verse 3. It's a binding promise. The faithful love promised to David is his promise-making, promise-keeping love. It's his never-letting-go love. And how do we find it? Verse 3, give ear and come to me, listen that you may live." In other words, listen to God's word and come to meet God. When you do that, you will find life in all its fullness. The good news of the Bible is that the servant of God, the word of God, has come to us and made himself known. He came to us in the person of Jesus. And when he did, he said things like this. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, the invitation of God is to listen to him and to know him and so to be satisfied. But he's not left the door closed on that secret world. He has opened it and he has stepped through it in the person of his servant, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us swiftly to the second of our lessons from this chapter in verses six to nine. Here, the Lord offers forgiveness to the guilty. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him. While he is near, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to God, for he will freely pardon. Here is where our hunger for satisfaction finds its shadow side. Those things that we chase for and yearn for, they're not morally neutral. As our desires are fixed on the wrong things, so they are distorted and used in the wrong ways. Things from God put in the place of God and therefore used in rebellion against God. The Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith writes very powerfully about the corruption of our desires and the way we become enslaved to them as we pit them against God himself. He writes... Insofar as I keep choosing to try to find that satisfaction in finite created things, whether it's sex or adoration or beauty or power, I'm going to be caught in a cycle where I'm more and more disappointed in those things and more and more dependent on those things. I keep choosing things with diminishing returns. And when that becomes habitual and eventually necessary, then I forfeit my ability to choose The thing has me now. It's a striking line, isn't it? The thing has me now. We won't be satisfied until we're free. The problem is the choices we make that keep ourselves in captivity to creative things have put us at odds with our creator. The act of putting substitute gods in his place is an act of of rejection of him and rebellion against him. And that brings the guilt of sin, it demands the judgment of God. So the question we must face is this, what kind of God is the God of the Bible? How does he treat those who do him wrong? It's a cliche today to talk about cancel culture, but many of us feel that's what God is like. Always hunting through the things that we've said and done, like some keyboard warrior on Twitter But that view is nothing new. Think of Mr. Darcy in Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice. Mr. Darcy said, I cannot forget the follies and vices of others so often as I ought, nor their offences against myself. My good opinion once lost is lost forever. Is that what God is like? Maybe you think it is. Maybe you fear it is that he wants to get you cancelled, that his good opinion of you once lost is lost forever. Well, perhaps that is the way of the world. It is certainly the way of our contemporary culture. But it is not so with the God of the Bible. Listen to him speak in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. In other words, his value system is not as ours is. Dismissed and ignored, he responds by speaking to us spurned and rejected he responds by inviting us back to him cast out of our sight and out of our minds he responds by coming to us and that after all is how the servant served us he came to us and he gave himself up for us so that he might declare pardon upon us there is forgiveness found in the person of jesus this God who calls us to himself does so, at uh, verse 7, in order to have mercy on us and to pardon us. He does it as Jesus dies, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And as he does, he forgives our guilt. And it's such a different story to the story of the world. But the American pastor John Piper puts it this way, the height of God's uniqueness is his willingness to pardon abundantly those who will return to him. So the Lord provides food for the hungry. The Lord offers forgiveness to the guilty. And finally, as I close, the Lord gives life to the barren. Uh, There's a final mental image here. It is of a dry and parched land, a desert wilderness, The only plants are the thornbush and briars. You could say thorns and thistles. This is a picture of a cursed land. But think of what happens when the rain starts to fall in the wilderness. The dry, cracked ground softens up and streams turn to rivers once again, and the green shoots of life spring up from the earth. In our soul hunger, in our search for satisfaction we become in ourselves dry and parched land. And perhaps we even feel that no good thing could grow there. Not so. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, barrenness is the arena of God's life-giving action. And here in these verses, God's word goes out like rain in the desert and it waters the ground and it brings forth life. He says of his word in verse 11, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It bears fruit, literally the banquet of the very best food, satisfying our soul hunger It brings forgiveness, literally the word of God written in the Bible, testifying to the word of God living, incarnate in the person of Jesus, who died and was raised to bring forgiveness to us, and much more besides. It brings life, life in all its fullness, life where there was previously only barrenness and even death itself. How can I be truly satisfied, we've been asking. It is to hear God's word, And to come to him. It is to be fed. It is to be forgiven. It is to find life itself. Even in the midst of barrenness. And what will that life be like? Well verses 12 and 13. Don't just tell us. They show us. Let me end with those words. You will go out in joy. And be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, Thank you for the food that you offer us. Thank you for the forgiveness that you hold out to us. Thank you that you have offered life in your name. And we pray now help us to walk through that door.